Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 23rd of January, 2023, and this is episode 285. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Professor John Bourne about his research, Sir Douglas Haig, the commander of the British Expeditionary Force on the Western Front for much of the Great War. John spoke to me from his home in the Midlands. John, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in Douglas Haig and the Great War? Um, I'm a post-war baby boom baby. So I spent my entire childhood surrounded by the first uh, the Second World War. Uh, everyone I knew seemed to have taken part in it in some form or another. I also grew up in a family of women where there were no men of military age for the First World War. Um, my paternal grandfather, who didn't fight in the war, died in 1940. And my maternal grandfather, who did, died in 1918. So uh, I didn't have any personal connection with the First World War like I did with the Second. And in many respects, it was invisible as I was growing up, the First World War. Um, and the Second World War was omnipresent. The only real connection I had with the First World War was I was not allowed to buy a poppy. And this injunction came ultimately from my grandmother, Louisa Sheldon, who died when I was three. I was three in the April of 1952, and she died in the May. And I can remember as clear as day. I can remember physically like I'm looking at you now. Now, some people might find this difficult to believe, but it, it's clearly the case. She was also a woman who's uh, cast a long shadow over the lives of her daughters. Uh, and she told them they mustn't buy a poppy, and they told me, and I did as I was told, because it was what grandmother wanted. Her objection was to what was on the centre of a poppy in those days, which was Hague Fund, or Earl Hague Fund. And um, she regarded the poppy as a, a, a means of extorting money out of uh, downtrodden people like herself as a war widow, um, and, uh, to, uh, you know, to enrich others. And, I mean, I knew this quite early on, that this was a slander on Haig's reputation. And it made no sense, whatever else you can blame Douglas Haig for, you can't blame him for my, far, my grandfather's death because he, said he was at Gallipoli in Mesopotamia. So um, I knew it was irrational, but even so, uh, it was a very long time, I'd say well into my 20s, that I felt I could buy a poppy without feeling disloyal um, to my grandmother. So that was the only real connection. Um, by the time I was 10 or 11, I had a pretty good understanding of the Second World War, I think, which I just sort of picked up by osmosis. The first war I ever did any reading about was the American Civil War, which um, arose out of mine and my father's interest in Westerns, I suppose. Um, and it was only when I was about 14 that I really discovered the First World War. And it was quite accidental and random. I was in the local library on a Saturday. And I saw a copy of John Terrain's Douglas Haig, The Educated Soldier, which had only recently come out. So this would have been 
1963 or early 1964, but it was definitely before the BBC Great War series. And given that I wasn't particularly interested in the First World War at the time, and I'm not quite sure why I took this book off the shelf and took it home with me, but I did. I think it was probably to get more material for my family's view of Douglas Haig and the nefarious way he was extorting money out of the downtrodden working class. So, But when I read it, it was transformative. Um, the book had a real influence on me, which went beyond the First World War. Uh, it went right to the heart of the study of history, because the book at the time Terrain wrote it, 1963, his thesis, which is, you can reasonably describe as pro-Hague, was desperately unfashionable. Um, I remember AJP Taylor, uh, who had a real sort of status amongst grammar school boys like myself in the 60s as a sort of cool dude who gave lectures on the telly. He, um, he described Terrain's book as a whitewash. And um, I didn't believe that when I read it, probably in The Observer or something. Um, and it struck me as being a very powerful thesis, which I think I can summarise as you can't understand the First World War by understanding Douglas Haig. In order to understand Douglas Haig, you must understand the First World War. And I think that's right. Um, and Terrain made three fundamental points, which have remained with me ever since. And I think if you, if you can't grasp these three things, then you'll never understand the First World War. The first is that it was a short war. Now, that went against the trend of uh, it was a long war because, quote, it wasn't over by Christmas, unquote. Um, a phrase which has had a history, uh, a long history, which is completely undeserved. I, I heard a well-known TV historian recently saying they thought it would all be over by Christmas. Well, they didn't. And, and my friend Stephen Badsey assures me that, that the actual phrase, it'll all be over by Christmas, doesn't appear until 1917. But they clearly didn't think it will all be over by Christmas. Um, and it was a short war, shorter than the Second World War, 52 months, 1,552 days for, for, for Britain. And this had various consequences. Because it was a short period, it meant that everything that took place, good, bad and indifferent, was was concentrated into this small time frame. So the growth of the army, the transformation of the army, the development of new technologies and weapon systems, uh, the development of, of new uh, means of command and control, uh, the introduction of things like tanks and the development of the Royal Flying Corps, um, the massive increase in size of the, of the officer corps uh, virtually overnight. Um, I did hear someone... Uh, uh, an old friend of mine from the Imperial War Museum on a YouTube video last week, Alan Wakefield, saying that the, uh, the British Army went from being a corner shop to Sainsbury's overnight. And I think there's a profound truth in that. And if you don't understand that, then you can't situate the reputations of Douglas Haig or indeed any other commanders uh, sensibly. The second thing Point Terrain made was it was a, a coalition war. In fact, he said famously, the only two things that are missing from most British accounts of the war are the French and the Germans, um, to, which, to which he might have added uh, the Russians, um, which meant that um, a lot of British decision-making, particularly in, in the field of strategy, 
is constrained by the fact that they are in a coalition, coalition war and are fighting to a great extent on, on the uh, sovereign territory of their main ally. The third element is um, that we were permanently engaged, at least in, from the Battle of Mons onwards, with the main forces of the main enemy. And this makes the First World War so totally different from the Second World War. Um, and people don't grasp that. When I was director of the Centre for First World War Studies at Birmingham, I used to deal with quite a lot of queries from the great British public. And one of them was, Great Uncle Fred was killed on such and such a date. Which battle was he in? And people didn't seem to realise you didn't actually have to be in a battle to get killed in the First World War. And that there's this constant drain of casualties in, you know, in, in the the day-to-day -day grind of, of trench warfare, which is largely missing from the Second World War, um, where we only confronted the main forces of the main enemy on the, on, on the ground in land warfare in 1940 and promptly and sensibly ran away. Uh, and after that, we never did. Even in 1944-45, in extremely heavy fighting Northwest Europe, uh, the main forces of the German army were still on the Eastern Front. So it's it means that you don't have a kind of honeymoon period for, for the British Army or the BEF, particularly in the First World War, and when it can sort of come to terms with what had happened to it. Uh, it had been thrown into this maelstrom of, uh, of continental war virtually from day one and, and couldn't disengage and go back and let's have a think about this, what should we do next? Um, I think that's really important as well. So I took those those things from Terrain's book. But as far as this, th this podcast is about Douglas Hay, I think Terrain's fundamental point that you can't understand Haig unless you understand the war is absolutely fundamental. And it doesn't work the other way around. The, the First World War uh, is not simply a working out of Douglas Haig's limited abilities and character, you know, on the grand scale. Wasn't like that. So once I read this book, and of course after I'd read it, then on its heels was the um, BBC series, the Great War series, nineteen sixty four, uh, which Terrain jointly wrote with Curelli Barnett. And after that, then I, you know, I started uh, reading on it widely, and I actually looked at my school library. What have we? What books have we got in the First World War? And the only one I could find was Alan Clark's The Donkeys. <laughs> so even at the age of 14, I'd worked out that deep down it was shallow. And um, I thought, God, there must be more to it than this. So um, after that, I, I read as much as I could. And the next book that really influenced me was The History of the Local Territorial Division, the 46th North Midland Division, written by Raymond Priestley, its signals officer. Um, published in 1919, which had a tremendous uh, effect on me. Uh, it showed me that the First World War had a local context, which I wasn't really aware of. Um, it showed me that the First World War had heroes, as well as the Second World War, which had never occurred to me before then. Um, and it showed me the way in which um, the officer corps in particular had evolved over the course of the war and the kind of people and territorial divisions weren't the same as regular officers anyway, but the ones who were in territorial divisions by the end of the war weren't the same as the territorial officers at the start of the war. And it was a much more kind of lower middle class, working class 
kind of officer corps. I think an evolution which has never really impacted on popular consciousness at all. So you've talked about Terrain's view of Erg Haig. Let's look at what other historians have said. And also wonder whether I'm sort of taking the next question as well, why they have come to this view of the of DH. I'm just sort of, I'm thinking my vision of DH as the last episode of Black Adder, where he's yeah. he's, he's he's got his dustpan and brush and putting model soldiers in the bin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first thing you have to remember that at the end of the war, Douglas Haig was a national hero um, <clears throat> and his reputation in the nine years of life left to him, not, 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 not died in January 1928, uh, his reputation grew even more because of his work for ex-servicemen and, and so on. And when he died, there were he, he died in London. His body was moved up to Scotland. There were huge reverent crowds in London and in uh, Edinburgh when he died. And yet within a handful of years, there emerged the reputation that we're familiar with, that, that is Douglas Haig, the butcher, um, uh, a 19th century cavalry officer who was lost in the 20th century world of high technology uh, and so on. Um, I think this happened in basically two waves. First of all, about 10 years after the end of the war, there was a wave of what, what might be termed anti-war literature, often written by veterans of the war, people like Siegfried Sassoon, uh, Robert Graves, uh, R.C. Sheriff, and so on, uh, which showed the war from the um, frontline infantryman's point of view. And um, once it became clear into the 1930s that it wasn't it hadn't been the war that was going to end all war. I think that lowered the general reputation of the war. Um, but the two key figures, I think, uh, in the decline of Douglas Haig's reputation are Littleheart, um, who was originally quite pro-Haig. Littleheart was an officer in the First World War. Uh, was actually quite pro-Haig, but after the war, really turned against him uh, and thought that he was you know, a strategically limited um, operationally incompetent, you know, bad tactics, far too high casualties, didn't understand technology, particularly tanks. And uh, the other person who uh, was assist actually assisted by Little Heart was Lloyd George. It was Lloyd George's war memoirs written from the mid to the late 30s. Um, he, at the height of appeasement, um, Lloyd George really stamped on Haig's reputation. I mean, you don't even have to read the book, just read the index <laughs> under Douglas Haig, and you can find a litany of all the things that are wrong with it. And one thing, it's a very, I'm sure you've read Lloyd George's War Memoirs. It's a curious book because there are entire chapters which he didn't write. It's probably written by his friend Tom Jones, um, which are full of you know technical detail about developing munitions factories in the north of England. And then there'd be a short chapter, uh, which would be pure Lloyd George, like the one on Kitchener, where he, he compares Kitchener to um, um, a, um, a lighthouse. The light goes round and occasionally sends shafts of light into the into the darkness, and then relapses into darkness again. And um, there was, the, you know, the famous one about Douglas Haig being um, clever up to his top of his boots, um, and the thing that really, I think, did for Haig's reputation is that series of chapters in Lloyd George's War Memoirs called The Campaign of the Mud, 
um, which was Passchendaele. And I, I do wonder whether we'd ever have thought the same way about Passchendaele if it was called Chipping Sodbury. Um, but there's something about the word which is ev evocative of um, Calvary and, um, you know, uh, and, and Jesus Christ um, in what was a still re re relatively a religious age. And um, that word, so it, it was a contrast between this word, you know, the Passion Dale, um, in which supposedly an entire generation was you know, lost in the mud. Um, the second wave, I think, comes post-Second World War. And I think there's a, a profound sense in which you can talk about the influence of the Second World War on the first, because anyone who has lived since the Second World War cannot but view the First World War through the prism of the Second World War. And um, it seems to me that the two world wars are both, um, in some ways, mythologized, but in different ways. So the Second World War is, you know, the great national triumph you know, um, achieved against pure evil in which Britain plays a key role and, and in which British casualties are far lower than they were in the First World War, third. Um, and the generals appear to be, I do stress appear, uh, to many to be, you know, much more competent and above all, much more human. So no matter what you think about Montgomery, you know, he did come over as a, as a, as a human person. Um, he was somebody who could respond, you know, to, to, to modern means of communication and present an image. I mean, the idea of Douglas Hay, somebody taking him to one side and saying, excuse me, Field Marshal, you know, I think you need to pay more attention to your social media profile. <laughs> I don't think he'd have been very impressed. I mean, you can still see it. I, I've just read Peter Caddick Adams's latest book on Victory in the West, 1945. And um, Montgomery is, you know, a complete showman. But one of his army commanders, Miles Dempsey, it's possibly the most self-effacing man in history uh, who that's much more like um, the, the self-image of British generals that they, they didn't think they should put themselves forward in this kind of vulgar uh, populist way. So Dempsey was much closer to the sort of um, generals of the First World War than, than Montgomery was. So let's go back to D.H.'s early life. Where was he born and what was, it, what was the nature of his upbringing? Oh, well, he was born in Charlotte Square in Edinburgh. And there is a, a, a plaque, a modest plaque there, uh, said that, you know, Douglas Hagefield Marshall was born here. It's directly opposite the office of the First Minister of Scotland, <laughs> who was, um, possibly wishes it wasn't there. Um, he, he belongs to the Hague distilling family. Don't be vague, as for Hague. Uh, he was the youngest of nine children, four of whom were boys. Um, he, his father was really pretty old uh, when Douglas was born and died when Douglas was young. He was also an alcoholic. Um, Hague was very close to his mother, who died before when he was about 18. And after that, he was very close to his sister, Henrietta, at whose house he died in uh, 1928 in London. Um, he wasn't rich. The family, uh, I, I suppose you could look at the Hague family as being pretty, you know, pretty well off. 
Um, but he was right at the bottom of the heap. You know, by the time you get down nine levels, there's not necessarily a lot there. So the idea that Haig had enough money to live on and be a gentleman of um, independent means, he didn't. So um, the decision to join the army is, is to find a career. So for Haig, it was a job, never a hobby. Um, he, he went the normal, you know, prep school, public school, Clifton College in Bristol. And then unusually for future army officer, he went to university, Brazenose College, Oxford. Now, most regular army officers didn't go to university. Uh, and one of the main reasons they didn't is there was no point. Because if you spent three years at university and then joined a regiment, uh, you'd lost three years of seniority in comparison with some, some of your colleagues. And Haig famously didn't take his degree. And uh, I get this rammed down my throat every time I speak to a certain type of audience. He said, well, he never got his degree, you know, because... Uh, was it because he was stupid? No, it wasn't. It was because um, he didn't have enough residence um, to qualify for a degree. Um, and if he'd stayed on in order to get the residence, this would have put him even further behind and going to Sandhurst. So he thought, well, it doesn't make any difference really whether I have a degree or not for my future, but it does make a difference when I go to Sandhurst. So that's, that's what he did. Um, it wasn't uh, entirely, I don't think, you know, a close, happy family life. Um, difficult to think your way into it. So it's so different from my own personal experience. I, uh, I can't really, I'm not sure I entirely understand it. But um, I mean, he came out of his upbringing with certain fundamental values, uh, which remained with him um, for the rest of his life. And what was his career in the British Army up to, I suppose, the outbreak of the Great War? Well, uh, as we all know, he was a cavalryman, uh, which is a black mark against him. Um, 11th Hussars, and then he transferred in the about 1903, I think it was, something like that, to uh, the 17th Lancers, where he um, jumped over his future chief of the general staff, Herbert Lawrence, who felt he should have been the uh, uh, commanding officer of the 17th Lancers. Um, I think the key steps in Haig's career are first of all being chief of staff to Sir John French's cavalry division in South Africa. Then he was becomes inspector general of cavalry in India, which is 1903-1906. And then he has two really important posts at the war office under R.B. Haldane, um, one of the greatest of uh, British secretaries of state for war, though, frankly, there isn't a lot of competition. Um, first of all, as director of military training, 1906 to 7, then director of staff duties, 1907-9, in which he plays important roles in the development of the territorial force um, and in the uh, promulgation of um, field service regulations, part one and part two. Now, I'm not saying he's responsible for the whole thing. He was you know, part of a team. Um, but Haldane, I mean, Haldane is a seriously clever man. He's, he's as clever as a sack load of Nobel Prize winners. Um, and the idea that um, there are those people who think Haig was stupid, you know, in the commonly accepted sense of stupid, thick. Um, and he clearly wasn't. Uh, I think Haldane might have seen through it uh, if that was the case. And, uh, you know, Hald Haldane had a high regard for, for Haig and his abilities. 
And it's important to stress that by the time he goes to be chief of staff in India, which is his next big job, 1909 to 1911, he has been a central figure in what was a reforming period for the British army in the aftermath of the South African War. So this idea that Hague is some sort of fuddy-duddy backwoodsman, you know, set his face against change, no. He's at the forefront of change, the British Army. First of all, in the cavalry, because he helps modernise the cavalry. Um, and then he helps modernise the army uh, when, he, when he gets to the war office. When he makes Major General at the age of 37, he's actually then, at that time, the youngest Major General in the British Army. So um, although his career, in a sense, took a while to get off the ground, once it did, it went up like a rocket. When he gets back from India in 1911, he becomes GOC Aldershot's command. Now, Aldershot's the, famously the home of the British Army, um, and the Aldershot Army Corps, which was uh, designated to be one corps of the BEF in time of war, was the most organised bit of the British Army before 1914. So although the British Army has six regular divisions, at least on paper, um, and it has 14 territorial divisions, at least on paper, um, which before 1914 are only intended for home defence, and 14 yeomanry cavalry brigades, the ones which are most well organised and kind of ready to go are the, the Aldershot Army Corps and the two divisions allocated to it, which are 1st and 2nd Division. So uh, the fact, this is in some ways the, a, a plum posting, and it just happened to be that the war broke out when Douglas Haig was commanding it. And you, you can never rule out, uh, you know, luck uh, when it comes to, you know, opportunities in life. So Haig gets to take the Aldershot Army Corps abroad um, as one corps. Uh, we only had two corps. Um, until September, when we have three corps, and Haig is involved in uh, much of the of the fighting, the early stages of the war, but more particularly around Ypres uh, in 1914. First Battle of Ypres has an important influence on Haig because it showed him the importance of sticking, sticking to it, um, not detaching, you know, seeing it through. Um, at the end of 1914, the British Army BF is reorganised into uh, two armies, First and Second Army. Haig gets First Army, Horace Smith Dorian gets the Second Army. And Haig commands First Army in many of the key battles of 1915, if you can call them key, battles like Neuve Chapelle, Ober's Ridge, and so on, right to uh, more, more seriously um, lose at the end of, uh, in from September. And then um, Sir John French had been falling from grace, both with Kitchener and Asquith. And um, although Haig is usually blamed for sort of stabbing French in the back and getting rid of him, um, by the end of 1915, Johnny French has um, some pretty powerful enemies, you know, more, more powerful than Douglas Haig. So he gets sacked at the end of 1915 and Douglas Haig becomes um, commander-in-chief of the BEF, uh, which he then commands for the rest of the war. And as they say, the rest is history, not to mention infamy. <laughs> right, John. So 
Let's turn to Haig's personality and character. What was he like as a person and how did his, I suppose, manner and, and sort of a style shape his ability or maybe lack of it as a commander? Um, most people saw him as uh, reserved, uh, but that was commonplace amongst regular British Army officers. There's nothing unusual about that. Austere. He was asthmatic. And um, in order to overcome asthma, particularly in childhood, he developed a remarkable degree of self-control. Um, I don't think he was very good at small talk. Um, I don't think so he's somebody you want to go down the pub with, you know, for a pleasant evening, witty conversation. Um, but then again, that probably applies to the majority of generals I know anything about. Um, he was, of course, religious and... Um, some people make much of this to his detriment, particularly Gerard de Groot, I think, who seems to think that he thought he had a direct line to God, uh, and God was not, not, not merely his spiritual advisor, but his strategic advisor. Um, and that because he, because he, was, he had this sort of godlike conviction, um, this allowed him to, you know, waste the lives of ordinary soldiers. I think this is nonsensical. Um, as my friend Michael Snape um, has shown, Haig's religious views are not unusual. They are the commonplace religious views of someone of his generation, and certainly someone of his generation who came out of Scottish Presbyterianism. Um, and it wasn't as though this is unusual. After all, um, Another general who was very religious um, and thought that God was also the God of battles was Bernard Montgomery, um, who was the son of a bishop. So um, it doesn't, I don't think there's anything peculiar about Hague's religion, uh, but it undoubtedly fortified him uh, during the war and was one of those um, defences he had. Because I don't think people appreciate the appalling pressures that Haig was on. I remember when we, Gary Sheffield and I, did our book on um, uh, edition of Haig's papers. Um, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who used to be the um, curator of the Durham Light Infantry Museum. He phoned me up and he said he'd been reading about 1917 in our edition. And it suddenly hit him that he was the same age when he was reading the book as Haig was in 1917. And whereas my friend was looking forward to early retirement, Haig was looking forward to one of the most tumultuous years in British military history, 1917 through into, into 1918 and the end of the war. And he said, you know, the, the, the thought of having to sustain that level of moral uh, and professional pressure is extraordinary. And I think one of the you know, one of the things about Haig is he, he never cracked up or came anywhere near cracking up. Um, he was generally held in good esteem by ordinary soldiers, which people now find it difficult to understand. And of course, he never lost um, the support uh, and the belief of his the coterie of staff officers and people close to him. Um, I think that says a lot, um, you know, that he, he was the chief, capital T, capital C, and, you know, he was in charge. Um, he didn't have an easy life during the First World War. 
Um, you know, this idea that all generals lived in chateau 50 miles from the front line, drank fine wines and, and you know, expensive meals. Well, I don't think, you know, Hague's a Scotch Presbyterian, doesn't go in for that kind of thing. And um, I remember reading um, a book on the staff uh, years ago, and I thought, my God, you know, uh, staff work wasn't that cushy either, because it, it, uh, to me it was like, you know, spending four years revising for finals. It was really a hard grind. Uh, well, the staff wasn't that big, really, um, and it was it, it, it was it was you know very demanding. So I think aspects of Egg's character um, made him an effective commander, and was seen by others as being an effective commander. I think what he what he lacked, I think, was um, perhaps the common touch. Um, he certainly didn't have the Bulgarians' common touch like Montgomery, but most other generals of his generation didn't have. There were some, I think, in, in, in the First World War who had a way of you know, putting themselves over to the troops, perhaps at divisional level. Um, but Montgomery, uh, hey, didn't, uh, and nor did he try. Um, I think he was also uh, he was extremely hardworking and professional. A very good administrator, um, and he had a, a really clear understanding of how his army worked. Although he didn't have the common touch, he did have a very good memory for names and faces. And I've always been found it significant that in his diaries, he makes a visit to the third echelon base depot in Rouen, which is basically the where all the records of personnel records of the British Army were kept. And um, I've often thought, you know, I could do a sketch in response to what did you do in the Great War, Daddy? Um, I filed record cards at the third echelon base depot in Rouen. Well, somebody had to do it, and it was important that they did. And Haig made at least two visits there. And on his second visit, he remembered what had been going on in, in his first visit, and he went out of his way to, to comment, um, compliment the clerks who worked there even the lady clerks who were working there by a second visit, and also asked after the help of the regimental sergeant major, who had had some, I think it was a kidney problem the year before. Now, that's not someone who doesn't take an interest in ordinary people, that he actually remembered this. And he understood what a, an incredibly complex organisation the BEF was. As Terrain famously pointed out, it was the second biggest organisation in the British Empire after the London County Council. And the sort of things that it did and required to do, and in a foreign country, um, meant that you really had to have a commander who was who was on the ball. And I think he was at that level. I think he was good when it came to administration and logistics and so on. Um, he wasn't good with politicians. And I think he, had a, he wasn't that good with foreigners especially the French, though he tried his best. He took French lessons during the war, and there were some people who thought he was more articulate in French than he was in English. Um, and no matter what you say about Haig and the French and all the moaning he did about them in his diary, um, he was, in the end, a faithful ally. Now, you say, well, you know, so what if he wasn't good with politicians and, and foreigners? Well, these are two of the fundamental aspects of his job. So if he had weaknesses in these two areas, that's a serious criticism, I think. Um, on the 
he saw himself as a professional staff officer. He thought he was, you know, in the forefront of what you might call best practice before the war. And um, the idea that Haig didn't learn anything, or indeed that the army he commanded didn't learn anything, seems to me completely unsustainable. And AJP Taylor says somewhere the only thing the British Army learned in the First World War was to how to repeat its mistakes on an ever bigger scale. Well, that's just daft. And um, you spend any amount of time at whatever level, from GHQ, you know, down to the platoon, people are always trying to find a way of doing it better and learning from their mistakes, <coughs> of which there were plenty. And I suppose Terrain's argument was, well, given from where we started and given what we were thrown into right from the beginning, mistakes are inevitable. And, of course, um, the result of mistakes in war is high casualties. So how would you rate DH as a military commander overall? Obviously, maybe very difficult to do. Well, I think it's some, at one level, it's very easy. And at other, another level, it's very difficult. The easy level is, is unique in British military history because there is no one you can truly can compare him with. Now, uh, Little Heart, it always struck me as having no real understanding of you know, how modern armies actually operate. He, he's a great one for the adjective, Little Heart, that army sweep, poor, that kind of thing. How do they actually do it? You know, how do you make sure that the people pouring through the gap have got all their kit and et cetera, et cetera? Um, Little Heart believed in the great captains, people like Marlborough, Napoleon, Wellington. And when you think, I have great admiration for Wellington, but when you look at, Wellington never commanded more than 25,000 British soldiers at any one time. Haig commands the largest army that Britain has ever put in the field. It's the largest army we will ever put in the field. Um, so in that sense, it's not, there's nothing to, to compare him with. I think he had, uh, Gary Sheffield tells me from his experience, the staff college, that Haig was actually doing jobs which would now be done by different people. So there would be a national contingency, a contingent commander. There would be someone dealing with uh, allied uh, cooperation and there'd be an army group commander. But Haig's doing all those three jobs. And they probably, I, I do agree with Professor Travers to some extent that these, it's, it's too big for one man. And there is truth, I think, in 1918 that the, the, the job kind of um, becomes smaller. So, hey, you know, does it better? But the other thing, of course, is that, I mean, I think if you want to go back in a time machine, the place not to go back to is the British Army on the 1st of July 1916. Because you, you get the impression, you know, at least I do, that absolutely nobody from top to bottom knew what they were doing. And why should they? Because it was completely new. Um, because of the nature of coalition warfare, we, we become involved in this seriously heavy fighting for the first time. Um, when the army isn't ready, when Haig knew it wasn't ready, and when lots of people in the army right down to the junior officer level knew it wasn't ready, or at least they weren't ready either. Um, but in 1918, you have an army that's in, in some ways um, self-regulating. You know, you don't have to have people at the top telling people down at the bottom. There's less micromanagement. Um, this is most clearly expressed, I think, in terms of um, the evolution of core command 
So you read Andy Simpson's book. I mean, Corps Command in 1916 is completely different from Corps Command in 1918. I mean, Corps Command in 1918 is basically hands off. Um, you're a Corps Commander. You say to your divisional commanders, this is the task. What do you need? I'll give it you. Get on with it. Which is completely different from the kind of micromanagement they were attempting and failing to achieve uh, in 1916. So I think one of the problems with Hay to assess him is, I mean, if he'd been sacked at the end of 1916, I don't think anyone really could have complained. I'm not sure he could have complained. Um, but he wasn't sacked at the end of 1916, when you could say, well, this was a Duff general who'd failed. He takes it right through to victory. And so there has to be some explanation. Either he wasn't as Duff in 1916 as everybody said he was, uh, or he'd steadily improved and learned uh, the lessons of the war. Or the view I would take is that his army had learned the lessons of the war at every level. And that sense, it was easier, um, you know, to, to command. My own personal criticism of Haig as a general is that he says in his um, final dispatch that the strategy for winning the war was one of attrition. And I think it's very difficult to disagree with that. The question for me is, okay, if the strategy is attrition, how do you achieve successful attrition on the battlefield, given that normally what you need for successful attrition is to have numerical or firepower superiority, like the Allies did in the West in 1945? And we didn't. We didn't have numerical superiority, and we didn't have firepower superiority, in, certainly not in 1916. So was Haig trying to achieve attrition by the best operational tactical methods? And I think it's def difficult to give a yes to those questions in 1916. Um, and the, but from 1917 onwards, I suppose from Messines onwards, it becomes more, um, you know, attrition at the strategic level is beginning to be achieved more effectively at the operational level. I think there's a great deal of over-optimism in Hague in 1916, and he never really loses his belief in the efficacy of the breakthrough, which it seems to me is absolutely unachievable in 1916-17. And even though the Germans gave it a go, it was unachievable in 1918 either. So when you look at the way in which the British Army fights the 100 days, all arms cooperation, the Wolf Command, um, not worrying too much about your flanks, um, not being over-concerned with the capture of some, you know, ruined mud heap of a village pressing on. Um, that, those are huge changes. And I think that um, they're not down to Haig. Haig didn't, you know, wake up one morning and said, oh, I've worked it out, lads. This is what we should be doing. Um, sorry about the last two years, you know, but I've seen the light now. This is how it happens. Um, but what he did, I think, is create as a commander, um, an institution which was capable of learning, because it was a learning institution, in my view, and it did learn and got better and improved. And in 1918, um, from the summer of 1918 onwards, the British Army achieved, certainly in terms of scale, I mean, the largest land victories in its history. And it's as though some people haven't quite noticed this or can't believe that uh, if this happened, it had anything to do with Douglas Hay. But it did. It must have done. He was the man running it. Yeah.
And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work on DH and DH in general? Oh, DH, uh, well, there is absolutely no shortage whatsoever of biographies of Douglas Haig, and they keep coming out. When Gary and I finished the um, edition of his letters, Gary said to me, uh, I think I'd like to write a biography of Haig. And I said, Gary, that's the last thing I possibly want to do, you know. Having lived with him for however long it took us to do it, three years, I thought, no, I don't want to write a biography of Douglas Haig. But Gary's written one. I, my friend Paul Harris, J.P. Harris, has, uh, has written one, and various others written by various people. Generally, Haig has not come out, has been relatively well treated by his biographers. In fact, I reread Gary's introduction and, and conclusion of the uh, of the chief before doing this uh, interview and uh, it's a book i um i've renewed admiration for every time i look at it because it's not one-sided uh, there are um, significant and meaningful criticisms of Hague. um i think it's not to diminish it at all to say it's well balanced something that doesn't seem to be all that uh, popular in british discourse at the moment but, you know, it, it is well balanced. So uh, if you want to read Gary's book and as a kind of, you know, much more critical approach to Haig from, from J.P. Harris, um, I think those two are both are both good books. Um, I think to set Haig in his context, I think uh, Simon Robbins' book on British generalship in the First World War, you know, is a must read. And there have been so many good books in the last, 10 or 15 years, you know, dealing with the First World War based on archival research uh, and which don't have a hang-up about the war and don't have a hang-up about Hague, um, but get, get on to study the war and, and, and not worry about, you know, whether Douglas Hague is a butcher, you know, whether he's austere, whether he's a conniving um, careerist or whether he's, you know, an upright soldier and Christian gentleman. Um they see that, you know, that's irrelevant in, in most respects. I don't regard myself as an expert on Haig in the sense of I've actually done much research on him. Um, my own most coherent um, view of Haig is the one I expressed in the book, um, Haig, what's it called? I've got it here. Um, Haig, a reappraisal after eight years, edited by Brian Bond and Nigel Cave. Um, which Pen and Sword brought out 10 years later and call it Hager reappraisal 90 years on. <laughs> I didn't change a word of my, um, my, my, my chapter, which is the opening chapter. It's called Hague and the Historians. And um, I think that expresses to me, um, uh, or I think I express myself most cogently uh, about Hague in, in that chapter. But for me, it's summed up in uh, my, my book, Britain and the Great War, where I had a, a section right at the end of the military section called The Chief, in which I said that Douglas, in 1918, Douglas Hay led the BEF to the greatest land victories in British history, full stop. His countrymen have never forgiven him. I think that's the, it's because the First World War stands out in British history the way it does. It's the casualties were at, which are at the core of it. And they are the highest casualties that we've ever experienced and the presumably the highest casualties we will ever experience. And they're so much less than in the Second World War. But the truth of the Second World War, people don't like to hear it, is that we did far less fighting 
than we did in the First World War, especially on land. If you look at the uh, the struggle at sea, uh, and if you look at the struggle in the air, the casualties are extremely high. Uh, and the war at sea, of course, is like the war on land in the First World War. You, you know, you are engaged with the main forces of the main enemy from day one to the end. Um, and casualties when we do fight the Germans, you know, in 44, 45, particularly in officer casualties, are as high as anything in the First World War. Um, and that's when we have, you know, we we have armies which are fantastically well resourced, which dominate the air, which have which is endless qualities of ammunition, um, and have, have an, uh, an an enemy which is constantly going backwards, and some elements of which realise they've lost the war, and some of which don't. Um, but even then, the you know the casualties are very high. The casualties of bomber command who are engaged with the main forces of the main enemy, they're, they're very high. Um, and that's the, that, that's the truth of it. If you're going to fight major wars against major military and industrial powers like Germany, you can expect to sustain major casualties. And I don't think anyone is particularly to blame for that. It was just the nature of the beast. And on that bombshell, John, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>